And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at Gamera the Brave, the uh, latest Gamera film, and, uh, you know, kind of a, a different different and sort of traditional Gamera film at the same time. So today we are going another movie, but we are jumping way back, way back. We are going into the Showa era, and we are taking a look at Atragon all the way from 1963, featuring the legendary flying submarine Gotengo, and of course, the uh, the dragon monster Manda. But before we get to that, we do have some news, so let's jump right into it. The Godzilla Minus One trailer has had a Daikaiju-like release on YouTube, with the video from Toho's official YouTube channel having reached an astounding 7.7 million views in only three weeks. Now, needless to say, the excitement around this film is palpable, both within the fandom as well as the general public. Now, I've seen many articles across the internet hyping the release, both what I would consider fan sites as well as, like, general sites. You know, that is the the pop culture power and crossover appeal of Godzilla, and the really just, this film is just taking a lot of people by storm. So, now, we are on track for the November 1st release in Japan, followed by the December 1st release here in the West. So I expect Toho to keep the promotion train rolling as we move here into the fall for Godzilla Minus One. Now, in other Godzilla theatrical news, Godzilla 2000 is returning to the theaters in the U.S. For its 23rd anniversary, Godzilla 2000 is getting a special engagement from Fathom Events in November. The show is not listed on the Fathom Events site as of yet. But Fandango is showing a November 1st date for this screening event. Now, the other thing I do want to say, we don't know at this time whether this will be the Japanese original, whether this will be the international English dub, or if it will be the version prepared by Sony for that original U.S. release. You'll remember that Toho had their uh, international dub, which Sony TriStar was not happy with, so they commissioned a new dub, which is the one for the we got here in the States for the Godzilla 2000 uh, theatrical release. Now, long-time listeners will remember that I did in fact see Godzilla 2000 during its initial U.S. theatrical run, and that I shared that theater with a certain young man who managed to take the word dad and make it into two syllables somehow. <laughs> Go check out episode 16 of the show for details. And once I hear more info on this special event, I will post uh, either on my social media or here on the, on the uh, podcast. So please keep an eye and an ear out for that one. Now, in Ultraman news, Battle Kaiju Series 02, Ultraman vs. Alien Balton, is coming to Blu-ray from Mill Creek this December. 
This is a collection of episodes from various Ultra Series shows featuring that fan-favorite alien ninja, Balton. Now, since I have all the Mill Creek releases, the chances are I already have all these episodes, but still a cool-sounding set, especially as a way for Mill Creek to continue to put out new Ultra boxes even as they are actually running out of material to release. Now, the set is due on December 19th. You can pre-order it on Amazon. And a hat tip to my brother Jason for letting me know about this one on Facebook. In other home media news, SRS Cinema has announced a new Daikaiju release. Yuzo, The Biggest Battle in Tokyo is a 2022 tokusatsu comedy from writer and director Yoshikazu Ishii, best known for another film SRS released on home media, Attack of the Giant Teacher. The official description from SRS goes a little something like this. Yuzo Uki is unexpectedly fired. Managing to find a new job, Yuzo navigates the maze of crazy co-workers. Yuzo is undaunted, but he is bullied by his new workmates and dumped by his girlfriend. Suddenly, an alien encounter changes everything as it feeds off the co-workers and melds with their madness, creating an explosion of energy that plunges the town into chaos. Only Yuzo can save them from this crisis. No release date or formats have been announced, but given that this is SRS and what they've done in the past, I'm expecting both a Blu-ray and VHS release, potentially a DVD, although mostly it's been Blu-ray and VHS lately, and hopefully a cool poster to go along with them. Now, more information on this film and this release, I should say, as it develops, but I will say I have supported pretty much every Daikaiju um, and Tokusatsu release that SRS has done, so I will definitely be picking this one up. And finally, in other independent Daikaiju news, the Loch Ness Horror is coming from Uncorked Entertainment on digital platforms and DVD on November 7th. The official description goes, A submarine vanishing prompts a rescue operation that comes face-to-face with the cause, the Loch Ness Monster. Having escaped the Loch, it has now unleashed decades of pent-up aggression on all those it encounters. In a fight for survival, our team of rescue operatives must overcome the terrors both beneath them and within their ranks. Now, in the broad strokes, the concept reminds me of the legendary unproduced crossover between Hammer and Toho, Nessie, although I strongly suspect that this one will not be quite as ambitious. Still, looks like fun, so check out the trailer and uh, make your own judgment. Hat tip to Rue Morgue for this story, and you can find the trailer on the Rue Morgue website. All right, that's all I've got for news. If you've got any news that you think is of interest to the listeners here at Earth Destruction Directive, why don't you go ahead and send it to me, Directive at yahoo.com. You can also tag me on Facebook or Twitter or X, whatever we're supposed to call that now. And uh, if you send along some information we use on the show, I will be sure to give you credit when I use it. All right, that's all I've got, folks. So now we're going to take a quick break. We're going to go fishing in the river of life. And when we come back, it's time to be all bound for Moo Moo Land because we are going to be talking about Atragon right after this. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to do it. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular and then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a 
and it doesn't fast enough, so it's better to just set oh, it up. Oh, okay. It, it, it really doesn't work well. So I checked. Right. Uh, I checked my. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, my. Pre- it definitely build build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join back to the bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. All right, folks, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Time to make mine a 99 and get into our feature. We are talking about the film Atragon, which is Japanese title is Kaite Gunkan, literally the undersea warship, which was released to Japanese theaters by Toho on December 22, 1963. American International Pictures released a shortened English dub version of the film to American theaters in December of 1964. Now we have three writers sort of credited on this. So our first writer is Shunro Oshikawa, who is credited with the story. Oshikawa was a pioneer of science fiction in Japan. And his most well-known work is Kaito Boken Kidan, Kaite Gunken, literally, Undersea Warship, A Fantastic Tale of Island Adventure, which was written in 1900, in a story depicting an alternate future where Japan is at war with Russia, and it features an uh, undersea warship, a submarine. Now, the book was so successful that it actually spawned a series of five follow-up stories through 1907. Oshikawa is generally credited as helping create the genre of adventure fiction in Japan, but his works also helped to popularize nationalism and imperialism in Japan through popular culture during this period. Now, Oshikawa's works mostly remain untranslated, and thus his influence is primarily remembered only in Japan, with the exception being of adaptations of his work, such as this film. Now, Wikizilla lists Shigeru Komatsuzaki is an uncredited contributor to the story. Now, Komatsuzaki was a author and an artist, perhaps best known actually for his commercial artwork for model kits in Japan, ranging from Gundam to Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet. Komatsuzaki also wrote science fiction and adventure novels and worked for Toho as a production designer, films such as Mysterians and Battle in Outer Space. Now, one of his books, The Undersea Kingdom, is tagged with a Characters inspired by credit on Wikizilla for the use of the Mu Empire as the empire, as the enemies, I should say, in this film. Now he is uncredited, so I don't know to what extent that is. Whether it was just something unofficial, but there you go. I'll let you uh, sort that one out for yourself. And last but never least, we have Shinichi Sekizawa on the script. Very familiar name to Toho fans. Sekizawa was one of Toho's most prolific writers and helped shape the very basis of the daikaiju genre during the Showa era. Now, by this point in 1963, Sekizawa had written Varan, Battle in Outer Space, The Obscure Secret of the Telegion, one of the supposedly lost films, Mothra, King Kong vs. Godzilla, and The Lost World of Sinbad, a.k.a. Samurai Pirate, a tokusatsu fantasy, which I've never seen and sounds amazing. Now, Sekizawa would go on to continue working for Toho through the early 1970s and is rightfully very well remembered for his many contributions to the genre. Our special effects are by Eji Tsuburaya, unsurprisingly given the time frame. Tsuburaya was the granddaddy of tokusatsu special effects and worked on essentially every tokusatsu film Toho had produced to this point, 
starting with Gojira in 1954 and giving the world beloved additional monsters like Rodan and Mothra. Tsuburaya would continue to work as the top effects man for Toho for a few years after this, before also launching his own production house and creating a little series, you might have heard of it, it's called Ultraman. Now, always welcome, of course, to see Eiji Tsuburaya in the credits, and this is no exception here. Uh, our director is Ishiro Honda, again, unsurprising at this stage for Toho. Now, at this point in 1963, Honda had directed Gojira, Half-Human, Rodan, The Mysterians, The H-Man, Varan, Battle in Outer Space, The Human Vapor, Mothra, Gorath, King Kong vs. Godzilla, and Matongo. And let's think about this, that's only about half of his genre output. And just look at that murderer's row of movies that this man directed. Clearly, Toho was putting their A team on this picture, as we can see from uh, the, the crew that we discuss. Finally, our producer is Tomoyuki Tanaka. I couldn't not mention the longtime producer of Toho genre films. Tanaka's name is synonymous with the studio and their output, as he was involved on the production side for five separate decades, right up until his death in 1997. Always good to see Mr. Tanaka. So, our synopsis comes straight from Wikipedia, and it goes a little something like this. While on a magazine photo shoot one night, photographers Susumu and Yoshida witness a car drive into the ocean. While speaking with a detective the next day, they spot Makado Jinguji, daughter of the deceased Imperial Captain Jinguji, who is also being followed by a suspicious character. Her father's former superior, retired Rear Admiral Kusumi, is confronted by a peculiar reporter who claims contrarily that Captain Jinguji is alive and at work on a new submarine project. The threads meet when a mysterious taxi driver attempts to abduct Makoto, Makoto and the Admiral, claiming to be an agent of the drowned Mu Empire. Foiled by the pursuing photographers, the agent flees into the ocean. During another visit to the detective, a package inscribed Mu arrives for the Admiral. Contained within is a film depicting the thriving undersea continent with its own geothermal sun and demanding that the surface world capitulate and prevent Jinguji from completing his Atragon submarine named Gotengo. The UN realizes that Gotengo may be the world's only defense and requests that Admiral Kosumi appeal to Jinguji. Concurrently, Makado's stalker is arrested and discovered to be a naval officer under Jinguji. He agrees to lead the party to Jinguji's base, but refuses to disclose its location. After several days of travel, the party finds themselves on a tropical island inhabited only by Jinguji's forces and enclosing a vast underground dock. Eventually, Captain Jinguji greets the visitors, though he is cold towards his daughter and infuriated by Kasumi's appeal. He built Gotengo, he explains, as a means to restore the Empire of Japan after its defeat in World War II, and insists that it be used for no other purpose. Makado runs off in anger, later to be consoled by Susumu. Gotengo's test run is a success, the heavily armored submarine even elevating out of the water and flying above the land. When the captain approaches Makado that evening, they exchange harsh words. Again, Susumu approaches, reproaches the captain for his selfish refusal to come to the world's aid. After Makado and Susumu are captured by the reporter and the base crippled by a bomb, Jinguji consents to Kasumi's request and prepares Gotengo for war against the Mu Empire. The Empire executes a devastating attack on Tokyo and threatens to sacrifice its prisoners to the monstrous deity Manda if the Gotengo appears. The submarine appears, pursuing a Mu submarine to the Empire's entrance in the ocean depths. 
Meanwhile, Susumu and the other prisoners escape their cell and kidnap the Empress of Mu. They are impeded by Manda, but soon rescued by Gotengo, which then engages a serpent and freezing it uses, using the Absolute Zero Cannon. Jinguji offers to hear peace terms, but the proud Empress refuses. The captain then advances Gotengo into the heart of the Empire Power Room, and the sailors uh, disembark and freeze the geothermal machinery before successfully escaping to the surface. This results in a cataclysmic, cataclysmic even explosion, visible even to those on deck of the surface submarine. Her empire dying, the Mu Empress abandons Gotengo, and Jinguji and company, looking on, swims into the conflagration. Now, Atragon is one of those films where I had read about it for many years before I actually saw it. Now, despite supposedly being in rotation on US TV during my lifetime, I personally have no memories of ever encountering it on television, and the film was not released on VHS in the U.S. As such, it for many years was a glaring blind spot for me among the Toho films, especially since it does introduce a Godzilla series character in Manda. One thing I do want to mention, despite the name of the film being Atragon here in the U.S., and the U.S. dub calling the submarine Atragon, I'm going to refer to the submarine by its much more common Japanese name, Gotengo. Now, there is a theory that the name Atragon was intended to refer to Manda, a portmanteau of Atomic and Dragon. But I don't think there's any actual evidence to support this theory, so I think that might just be some kind of uh, fan logic there. Now, on the surface, Atragon sounds like a juvenile action-adventure sci-fi flick. The crew of a super-powered flying submarine battles the mythical Mu Empire and their dragon god Manda. And on a certain level, this is a completely true statement, as the film can, in fact, be consumed on that level. But much more telling is Sekizawa's choice to adapt the source material's turn-of-the-century mentality and bring it in line with Showa-era Japan's values, specifically regarding nationalism and imperialism. This choice makes the film much more thoughtful than a simple action epic, but it also does bring along a particular set of baggage which can be harder to digest as a viewer. Looking at Atragon now as an American in 2023, some 60 years after and halfway across the world from when and where the film was made, it can be difficult to grasp the nuances of the socio-political commentary which populates Sekizawa's script. Now sure, we have our own tendencies to both of these sentiments here in the West, but there is definitely a bit of outside looking in here compared to what I presume a native viewer would experience. Post-war Japan's rapid growth and desire to become a team player on the world stage is a key thematic element of many Showa-era films from Toho. But in Atragon, this is played almost from the reverse angle. Captain Jinguji is a throwback or an anachronism, a man out of step with the current political and social norms who finds his own values strongly and sorely tested. In effect, this is the story of Jinguji learning to, if you'll pardon the expression, read the room and reconcile his own strongly held beliefs with the modern zeitgeist of his homeland. Jinguji is far and away the most important as well as the most interesting character here. He presents an argument which is both understandable as well as frustratingly narrow at the same time. He and his crew created the Gotengo to protect Japan, and as a patriot, he does not feel that it is his responsibility to police the rest of the planet, as his duty is to his country. Now, as a self-described patriot myself, I very much can identify with this desire for a limited scope. In this case, why should Japan solve the world's problems? 
Now this is counterpointed by the fact that the Mu Empire is a threat to the entire world, including Japan. If the Mu Empire rips the planet apart, would not Japan also be impacted? Jinguji's close-mindedness and one-track way of life is difficult with which the viewer to sympathize. While Jinguji does come around and agree to deploy Gotengo to stop the Mu Empire and be a good global citizen, his initial stubborn refusal is a unique motivation at this stage in the Showa period, especially from a studio like Toho. Now, Many times, the villains or other obstacle characters in a Showa film reflect the negative aspects of modernization of Japan, capitalistic greed being a common theme, or ecological disaster in the name of progress. With Jinguji, though not a villain, the obstacle, however, comes not from modernization, but rather from tradition. It is a different approach from Sekizawa, and I do appreciate that he does have Jinguji be redeemed in the end, not only putting aside his outdated notions, but also reconciling with his daughter and moving forward into a new world. Now compare this redemptive arc to the Mu Empress. So devoted to her singular worldview, she chooses to sacrifice herself to the roiling sea rather than accept her way of life is gone. It's another intriguing choice for Zekazawa to have the villain go out on their own terms, rather than be hoisted by their own petard, as is often the case for Showa villains from Toho movies. The other characters in Atragon, however, do not hold up as well, as they are mostly there seemingly to move the story to get us introduced to the reclusive Jinguji. Susumu and Yoshido, seemingly our protagonists, don't have a whole lot to do other than move from place to place, and serve as a fairly goofy way to introduce us to Makado. The fact that they shoot pictures for magazines is not of use to the plot beyond having them be out in the middle of the night to witness the first Mu agent driving his car into the ocean. Usually, Sekizawa has characters' professions be something useful to the overall plot, such as a reporter or a scientist, or even Sakurai being a drummer from King Kong vs. Godzilla, but that's not the case with these two. Their capture and escape from the Mu Empire is a good enough action sequence, but other than them straight-up stabbing a guard to death, it is not one of the more memorable types of scenes of that nature from Toho's films of this era. Makado herself is similarly not given much to do in this story, which is both unfortunate and ultimately not surprising, as heroic girls in Toho films of this period are often quite well-behaved, with the better roles often reserved for the villainous girls. She does get to have her big dramatic moments with her father, which, as a dad, I very much appreciated, but again, she's mostly there to be moved around like a chess piece. I will say, the other character which I would like to mention is the High Priest of Mu, who is a different take on a stock Dai Kaiju character, a stock character often appearing in any film involving a monster god on a South Seas island. While the High Priest in this scenario if, is often an obstacle for the heroes to overcome, such as in Mothra vs. Godzilla from 1964, the priest here is a straight-up bad guy, deliciously savoring his coming revenge on the surface world and vigorously leading the massive and choreographed prayers to Manda. It's a small role, but certainly a memorable one. Now, I do also want to mention the uh, seemingly ubiquitous uh, native prayer scene, as we often get in films like this, where we have a, a monster god. And, uh, you know, somebody call Tammy Wynette, because that's what they need for this scene, if you know what I'm talking about. They are definitely all bound for Moo Moo Land. They're justified and they're ancient. And uh, I didn't see an ice cream van, but I can only assume, right? So, anyway. The other thing I do want to mention here is that there is a whole bunch of familiar faces in the cast. Now, I'm just going to rattle these off. We've got Tadio Takashima, Jun Tazaki, Kenji Sahara, 
Hiroshi Koizumi, Akihiko Harada, Yoshibumi Tajima, and Hideo Amamoto, all in this film. And if you're a fan of Showa Toho films, you will recognize every single one of these folks, even if you don't recognize their names when I read them. As soon as you see their faces, you know who I'm talking about. In this sense, with Atragon being made when it was, and being a definite A picture, as I said, they pulled out as many stops as they could, and it is clearly reflected in the cast. They wanted this film to be a success. Now, for me, ultimately, the biggest problem with Atragon really comes down to the pacing. There's a lot of story and exposition in the first half of this film. And most of the characters who are there for that portion of the film are not the most exciting ones. So we end up sort of marking time until we meet Captain Jinguji. And then it still takes a little while for the pace to pick up after that. I must say, once things get started in that last act, the action becomes almost breaknecked with Gotengo battling Manda, as well as the Mu Empire fleet, the sailors infiltrating the Mu Empire to destroy their generators. So the film does end well, and it perks up the audience, but there's an awful lot of talking to get us to that last act. As I said, I never saw this one as a kid, so I do wonder what preteen Luke would have thought of this. I suspect it would not have been in heavy rotation compared to some of its other fellow films from the same era. Now, one area that I don't think Atragon can be really criticized too harshly is the special effects as directed by Eji Tsuburaya. The biggest and most notable effects creation is clearly the Gotengo itself. Five different models were used for Gotengo, ranging from 30 centimeters, about one foot, all the way up to a whopping four and a half meters, which is nearly 15 feet long. Now, that large-scale Gotengo had both radio-controlled and manually-controlled elements and was big enough to fit an effects tech inside for some shots. The Gotengo remains one of the most singularly striking and beloved piece of mecha from the entire Daikaiju genre, and was so venerable that other craft were either directly or indirectly inspired by its design, including, of course, the Goten from War in Space, which you can hear in uh, Gaiden uh, 20, or the modern-day Gotengo from Godzilla Final Wars, which you can also hear in Episode 75. You might also want to take a look at the space battleship Yamato from uh, Star Blazers. If you go check out Anime Freaks, elsewhere on Two True Freaks, I got a strong suspicion a lot of that's based on Gotengo also. Now, we get many loving shots of Gotengo in this film, both when it is being launched as well as when it is, what is in, as well as when it is in action, which will definitely please the mecha fans in the audience. I was reminded sort of the scenes in Star Trek The Motion Picture where we get all the long, long, loving shots of the new Enterprise. Kind of the same idea. You want to see the Gotengo, you get to see the Gotengo. Gotengo's opponent is, of course, the monster god Manda, which I keep jumping back forth between Manda and Manda. I think it's supposed to be Manda. Now, being primarily based off of a Chinese dragon, only, of course, much more immense in scale. Now, initially, Manda was going to be a giant snake, and his name was simply Mammoth Snake, and then later, Mammoth Serpent. Now, blame the Chinese Zodiac for Manda becoming a dragon, as the following year was the Year of the Dragon, so the choice was made to make him more dragonine. Now, similar to the Gotengo, there were different sized Manda puppets created, with the smallest being only about 20 centimeters, to the largest being 5 meters long with a radio-controlled jaw. I mean, 5 meters, that's, I mean, that's over, that's over 15 feet long. That is a big, big dragon. Um, now, Manda himself, he's somewhat misleading as a monster. Because of his odd body shape, it makes him seem slight or even fragile. But the sheer length of him 
And the fact that Gotengo is similarly a very long horizontal shape, it makes them really impressive when you look at them. The largest scale puppet, it's extremely well detailed. There's wonderful reptilian scales and bristling fur on his back, plus these big, almost feline-like eyes. It really gives him a lot of personality. Manda, of course, would make an extended cameo in Destroy All Monsters, uh, once again battle the Gotengo in Final Wars. That scene in Destroy All Monsters that most people remember, of course, is him wrapping himself around the elevated bridge in New York. Uh, he doesn't take part in the uh, the battle at the end. I'm not sure how Manda would have really worked. Um, the thing also about Manda is I, I think he works better in the water than he does on land, right? I mean, uh, he looks okay in Destroy All Monsters, but he looks much better here, I think. Uh, the puppetry needed to bring such a unique shaped monster to life is impressive, and once again, very indicative of Subaraya's crew's ability to handle marionette monsters well, which we had previously discussed on this show when it comes to bug monsters who will appear later in the series, such as Kamakura's Okumanga. Oddly enough, Manda is a favorite of my older daughter. From his appearance in Destroy All Monsters, as well as his stock uh, footage appearance in All Monsters Attack, I suspect that this is because my daughter is a big fan of snakes, and this is the closest we have to a straight-up snake monster. Now, she is similarly a fan of Zegra from the Gamera series because of her love of sharks. She was legitimately excited when I told her that Zegra was coming back for the new Gamera Rebirth anime, even though we haven't watched it yet. Now, beyond the Gotengo and Manda, other solid effects work abounds in this film. When the Mu Empire attacks Tokyo, the destruction of the city is fantastic, reminding me of similar sorts of city-wide carnage from films like the Mysterians or Gorath. Now, these scenes of the city being ripped apart do certainly sell the complete threat of the Mu Empire. On the flip side, when the soldiers infiltrate Mu and start blasting everyone with their Zero rifles, there are several very well-assembled composition shots, with sailors and physical elements of the set blended well with models to create the illusion of the team running among huge equipment. And the gigantic explosion at the, as the continent of Mu goes up in a massive ball of flame and smoke is extremely satisfying as a viewer, as these Mu Empire people finally get what's coming to them. Overall, Atragon is an enjoyable film, but not one without its faults. It's too talky and too slow in the front half and it does try one's patience a bit as the story gets moving. Once things get into gear, however, it's a solid sci-fi spectacle, filled with action and creative special effects. Now, despite the pacing, there are some very thoughtful characterizations, and several of the seemingly stock characters turn their archetypes on their heads in a nice twist. And it has a cast which any Toho fan will definitely appreciate. Atragon is very much worth checking out, especially if you are like me and never saw it as a kid. Now, if you would like to own Atragon, well, that is a little tough. The only way to own the movie here in the U.S. is the now long out-of-print Tokyo Shock DVD. But in the interest of fairness, even that out-of-print DVD can be found on Amazon for about $27 or so as of this recording. That DVD has both the Japanese and English tracks, so you do have your choice of which version of the film you would like to watch. Additionally, Atragon can be purchased from Amazon Prime Video, and is streaming for free with ads on Tubi and Plex, but be aware that that streaming version is the U.S. version only from the outfit Cheesy Flicks, so it is in fact the dubbed one. But it's still free, so do what you got. 
All right, I now throw it to you, the listeners. What do you think? Are you a fan of Atragon? Do you like the Gotengo? Are you a fan of Manda? Do you think this film, um, you know, is is a classic, or do you think it's yeah, maybe it's a little talky? Uh, I'd love to hear some feedback on this. So email me EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. You can also get in touch with me on Facebook or Twitter, or leave a comment on the YouTube, however you want to get in touch. And I'd love to we talk about these here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get some listener feedback and close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Kenny, I'm starting a podcast. Recruit me and co-host with Attitude. Uh, What the heck? I thought we put that teleporter in storage. Uh, Michael? Next time you want me on Kaiju Weekly, tell Jimmy to... Drop the act, Nathan. This is not the Monster Island Film Vault. Okay, fine, but... What's going on? I'm having you join me on The Power Trip, a journey through the Power Rangers franchise. It's a podcast version of the article series I'm writing for Kaiju Ramen Magazine. Oh, interesting. We'll spend a year analyzing the Power Rangers franchise, dedicating an episode to each season and movie. Ah, I see. So we'll be doing an overview and talking about them in broad strokes. Exactly. We'll discuss Ranger teams, the villains, the theme songs, and so much more. Can we give out final words for stuff like the best fight scene and the craziest moments like I do on Henshin Men? You bet. More phenomenal. When do we start? We drop episodes every two weeks starting Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. You know what that means, Michael. It's Morphin Time. All right, folks, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive, and now it's time for a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Facebook. Just search for Luke EDD. You can also find me on Twitter slash X at El Giacone. Use the hashtag Earth Destruction Directive. Or you can find me on YouTube. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. So our email this time comes from my good friend Billy D., host of the magazine's End Monsters podcast, and Billy writes about episode 119, which was our Gorgo comic, and Billy writes, Hey Luke, just timing in to say, I've actually never read Gorgo. I've seen the movie, and I think it's a good bit of fun. I think Guanondaland published a complete Gorgo, but I could be wrong. Thanks for the fun episode. Look forward to more and collaborating. Cheers. Billy D. Well, first off, thanks, Billy. Yes, first off, I do want to say thank you for writing in. Appreciate that. And yes, I have had a lot of fun collaborating with you on various things uh, over the past year or two years or so. And I know we've got some stuff coming out as I'm recording this that have not quite um, hit your airwaves yet. So looking forward to that as well. Uh, I think you're right. I think that there is an outfit that's done a series of volumes to do the complete Gorgo. Not one, but I think like a couple of different volumes. The ones I'm familiar with, I have the ones from the Kickstarter where there was the one where... It was um, the Steve Ditko Gorgo, and now that one wasn't a Kickstarter. That one was from Abe Books, I think, or something like that, and they also did a Conga. They did a Steve Ditko Conga volume, and then there was like the one that was like the Joe Gill, uh, <laughs> the non um uh Ditko uh Gorgo as well. So uh some good stuff there. And yeah, I mean you can read all those Gorgo comics because they're all in the public domain. So if you go to, you know, Comic Book Plus or um there's a couple other sites you can go to. They're all it's it's free and legal to read. So Gorgo is a is a fun movie. I like it. It's funny. I've had a lot of Gorgo content on the podcast between that comic and then the um 
doing the 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 new uh, 4K from Vinegar Syndrome, which we covered on the YouTube. Uh, but I haven't actually done the movie yet, so I guess at this point uh, I'm going to have to do it. I had been trying to get a guest on to do that one because of the origin of the film as well as the Steve Ditko connection. Don't know if that's going to happen, so we'll see. Uh, I have to take a look. We'll have to plan out um, you know, the next couple of years and get Gorgo in there. So anyway, thank you very much for writing in, Billy D. Appreciate to hear from you. As I said, folks, would love to get some feedback. We are getting a little bit low on the email bag, so any thoughts you have... Uh, if you ever want to hear your name on a podcast, writing an email is a very good way to do it. Right. So I want to give uh, some thanks to Social Media Love for the last episode, which came from uh, Jason Giaconetti, my brother, host of Bots, Bugs, and Babes. Derek, Derek WC from the Fan Holes podcast. Tim Elliott, Gene Gene, the podcasting machine. Hendrix, Billy D himself, a.k.a. Doc Strange. You just heard his email. He's also supporting us on uh, on the internet. My good friend Adam Tebow, Brian Severe, Robert Ludwig, the most insane man among us, Siskoid, Sir Martin Gray, the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, and Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Thank you, everyone, for those likes, shares, retweets, re- reposts, whatever it is they call them now on X slash Twitter because it's not a retweet anymore. Um, as I said many times, you know, uh, a podcast the it's it's a labor of love so getting that bit of feedback out there getting that uh sharing that that link so that other people can maybe get a you know find it get exposed to it it means all the world to me and i really do appreciate everybody doing that and uh hope to continue to see those great social media engagements so thank you everyone for that now the other thing I do need to say, we talk about this uh, in every episode, and it's still true, is I do want to let everyone know that Earth Destruction Directive is, of course, for everyone. You are free to interact with this show in any way that you feel comfortable. If you want to be part of the Daikaiju community, you are welcome to do so here. If you're a newbie, if you're a veteran, if uh, you know you only really like one monster, I mean, uh, I think we could probably agree that there's other monsters have good traits. But if you're only like you only really like Rodan, hey, that's that's cool. We'll talk about it here. We're not here to gatekeep. We're a show for the people. All are welcome at our destruction directive. All right, so we've come to the end of an episode, and so now, of course, we must be looking forward. And so October is ostensibly Horror Comics Month. Not ostensibly, it is Horror Comics Month, and I'll often do a comic book just to cover that base and do some comics for Horror Comics Month. So we have a comic book series that we're going to be talking about from IDW. We're doing their Godzilla Oblivion miniseries. Very excited. I had to revisit this one. The thing with a lot of these IDW books is that I read them and I enjoy them and then they get bagged and boarded and I don't usually revisit them until I cover them here on the show. So I'm very much looking forward to this one. Um, This miniseries itself is not collected um, it is, I think it is, there is a collection, but if you're on Hoopla, like I am, it's not collected by itself. It's in one of the larger, uh, collections that they have there on Hoopla for Godzilla. So you can find it. I'm trying to look up, I'm going to vamp for a second while I look up on Hoopla, which collection it is that has Godzilla Oblivion, which as I said is a five issue series from IDW published a couple of years ago. Let's see if I go to my favorites. It is Godzilla World of Monsters. Look at that, wasn't too bad. So World of Monsters actually collects um, uh, Oblivion and Cataclysm and Gangsters and Goliaths. Now, we've covered Gangsters and Goliaths 
And uh, I think we've covered Cataclysm also for that matter. So this one will have Oblivion. And uh, just to give you a little preview, uh, when a reckless scientist opens a portal to an alternate dimension ruled by Godzilla and his brethren, a single baby kaiju stowaway could spell disaster for our monster-free world. So sounds exciting. So please check it out. And uh, you can read along with us as we covered here on the show. All right. That's all I've got. I want to thank everybody for listening. Again, remember, you can find Earth Destruction Directive at uh, twotruefreaks.com. So if you just go to Two True Freaks to find all episodes there. You can also find me on Facebook as Luke EDD. You can find me on Twitter slash X at Ljacone, L-J-A-C-O-N-E, or use the hashtag Earth Destruction Directive. You can find me on YouTube. Just search for, that's right, Earth Destruction Directive, and you can find it. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed us talking about Atragon. I hope you enjoyed all my KLF references. You know, after you listen to this episode, go listen to Justified and Ancient by the KLF. It's one of my favorite songs of the 90s. And, uh, you know, Moomoo Land. That's all I got to say. All bound for Moomoo Land. And uh, please come back next time when we're going to talk about Godzilla Oblivion for October. And until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2truefreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name EDD. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at Ljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.